0: Hi everyone, my name is Michelle from The Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, A Living Faith, discussing the book of James. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. The reading this week is from James 1, 19-27. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, His religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here ends the reading.
1: The key to being like Jesus is, first of all, getting angry about the things that anger God and being slow to anger. Ephesians 4:25 through 27 says this Therefore putting away lying speak the truth each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't let the devil and don't give the devil an opportunity See there are things we should be angry about be angry the bible permits it but do not sin Anger and rage are different things. Being angry and putting your fist through the drywall, those are different things. They are not the same. Also, being upset that there are kids killed in wars or people being oppressed or that there are people being led away from Jesus in our culture is much different than losing your mind because the service is slow at a restaurant or someone cut you off on the highway. One thing is something that God mourns and might actually be angry with. The other one is probably like, let me say it, a sanctification problem in you to work out with the Lord. Sorry if someone cut you off this morning on your way. here. Be slow to anger. When the person cuts you off and you flip them the bird or call them a name in your car, surely not us Christians, right? That wasn't a slow anger. It was an instantaneous. It was a reactionary anger. Anger And Christians, we are not to live that way. For human anger doesn't accomplish God's righteousness, James says. Your anger isn't what will accomplish God's righteous purpose in the world anyways. So, so while it's right to feel a type of way about injustice in our world, don't think that your anger is what is going to make the difference anyways. And when you understand that, you're off the hook for having to be instantly angry. You can be thoughtfully angry. You don't have to be reactionarily angry. You can sit, you can think, you can pray. And in your anger, you can avoid sinning. You can actually be in control. God gets angry. God's never out of control. And so you can be angry, but in control. You can be angry, but not slam doors, hit walls, break things, hurt people, fracture relationships. And we know that because that's how God is. And we are hopefully day by day, becoming more like him. Verse 21, Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. As you become this kind of person, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, you can can become a person who looks inward at their own life and their own heart. And you can begin to of course, by the power and help of the Holy Spirit, begin to weed out all moral filth and evil. Which, by the way, he says is so prevalent. Kind of insulting, okay? But he's saying it's not out there. He's saying in you, rid yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, even in your own heart. When people start talking about the world and how evil it is, because we do that in Christian circles, look at how filthy this world is, how perverse, how corrupt, how full of lust and gossip and unkindness this world is. We can just raise our hands and say, me too. Look at how full of those things my own heart is. Perverse, corrupt, lustful, unkind, gossipy. Yep, that's me, That's, that's us. And so we go to Jesus and we say, where are those things in me? Rather than, than immediately pointing a finger at society, ask him, where are those things in me? And Jesus, can we go after them together in my heart? Can we weed them out of my heart? Rid yourselves of those things and instead humbly receive the word that was implanted in you, which can save your soul. Humbly. Humbly receive it. Do you know what that looks like? How do we, how do we humbly receive the word? You place yourself under it. You place yourself under it. I'm down here, and it's up here, and I will then submit to it. I will submit my behavior. I will submit my moral vision. I will submit my understanding of the good life to the word of God. To not be humble is to say, sure, I believe in the Bible, but I don't agree with everything it means to say. I'll pick this and this and this thing. No, I don't believe that. I have different convictions about that issue. That's the opposite of humbly receiving the implanted word, the, the ridding yourself of evil and moral filth and receiving an implanted word, it, it kind of reminds me of gardening in a sense. Follow me here for a second. There are these prevalent weeds of moral filth and evil inside of you, but but there's also this implanted word, this gospel message, which can save you, and all you need to do is ask the master gardener Jesus to help you dig up all these things in your heart that can choke out the message before it can take root and grow up in you. Whether, whether it be lust or alcohol or drugs or greed or pride or jealousy or gossip or indifference or hate or likely a combination therein, we must begin to weed these things out so that we might grow in grace and continue to trust Jesus until we see him face to face. This must be a constant process in our lives. Sarah and I, several years ago, we had an idea to make our back patio bigger and better. And if you've seen our back patio, it's not great. We're just not outdoor people, and and it shows. Uh, Sorry to our neighbors behind us. If you watch online, it looks really bad most of the time. But, But we had some people come out and help us. Some of you were those people. Thank you very much. This was like 2019, 2020, something like that. And we made a perimeter around our patio, and we put these railroad ties down, and we dug up the grass, and we had like Truckloads of river rock delivered, and we and we put around the outside of our patio so we could set a swing in it and we could do some other things there if we wanted. And well, well, before you put the rocks down, if you've ever done this before, before you put the rocks down, you put down this black cloth stuff. You all know what I mean, right? There's probably a name for it. Weed stop is that what it's called? You put down. I knew that. You put down weed stop, right? Well, that name is very misleading. And we hate weeds, right? And, and we're not going to be people. Yeah, that I, there might be a lawsuit between me and the weed stop people. So, so you put this stuff down, and, and we hate weeds. We are not going to pe- be people that go out and pick weeds regularly, despite our best intentions, my wife's best intentions, mine were not. We are, we are doubly not going to be those kind of people now that we have children. And so we put the black fabric down, the weed stop. And they're in places it overlaps, so there's double weed stop, right? There's like weed absolutely stop. And then we put rocks over it a few inches deep, and our weeding issues are going to be over, right? Like how on earth is a weed going to, you know, they've been stopped. Would you believe that these weeds come up through two layers of this black fabric and a few inches of rock? Well, somebody comes over to my house, Somebody who had helped with this whole project, and, and they saw these weeds, and they said, well, the fabric must have a hole in it, or like maybe the weeds are on top of the fabric, some dirt got on top of there or whatever, and so we dug up a little bit, dug up the rocks, and now the fabric's intact, even two layers of it in places, rocks on top, but weeds are so resilient that they'll eventually break through all of that. The weeds, the evil, the moral filth, the sin, it's resilient. There is an enemy who hates you, who is like blowing evil dandelion onto the property of your heart, okay? That's a—that's an image of Satan that you've never had before. Like, hard to look intimidating when you're going, but here he is in this metaphor. But untended, your heart being untended, these... These weeds will grow and grow and grow. And there is no miracle fabric for the heart that you can place over it that will keep them from trying to come up. And so regularly, you need to receive humbly the implanted word, the gospel. You need to keep receiving it into your heart. Don't let sin choke out the word that can save you. Rather, humbly receive the gospel again and again and continue with Jesus to weed out anything in your heart that could choke it out. But don't only hear and read the gospel. Don't only read and hear the scriptures, but live them out. Don't just be a hearer, be a doer. I started a, a Bible in a year plan this year. I'm feeling pretty, pretty good about it. Day 14 so far, no big deal. Anybody else Bible in a year this year? Anybody? Yeah, look at, look at a few of you. That's awesome. Yeah, but, but there, there is a way to read the Bible, the whole thing, the whole thing in a year even, and not grow from it. There's a way to read it and check off a list and add a feather to your spiritual cap and yet come away unchanged. Better to read one chapter over the course of a year and be utterly changed by it than the entire Bible and not let it affect your day-to-day life. And of course, it doesn't have to be one or the other. The, The best would be to read through the whole counsel of Scripture regularly and be changed by it. But the forces of hell know the Scriptures, and they know it better than me, I'm sure, and yet they do not live by it. Do you know it? And do you live by it? If you only know it and you do not live it, then James said you're like someone who, looking at his own face in a mirror, who looks at himself, walks away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Essentially, you are someone for whom the looking was pointless. You looked, but you retained not the reason for which you looked in the first place. You hit the mirror and didn't remember to, to fix your eyebrows or whatever you needed to do. For, for me, it's eyebrows usually. Ask my wife. They're a little spiky sometimes. The mirror does you no good if it doesn't affect your actions. The Bible does you no good if it doesn't change your life. Jesus is not a man to be admired, but one to be followed. Followed. The Son of God to be followed. The word isn't to be read and found interesting, but rather to be read and lived out. And likening the Bible to a mirror it's not a random analogy. It's not an unrelated analogy for the sake of just making a point not to forget what you read. A mirror is exactly what the Bible is like. When you read the Bible with any awareness, any self-awareness, you understand that this book is living and active, and it's showing you as you read it. It's showing you yourself. It's showing you your own heart. You read it, and the parts that you bristle up against and you don't like, they're showing you something about yourself. The characters in it you sympathize with, they're showing you something about yourself. The characters you don't like in it, they're showing you something about yourself. When When you read it, and when you read through the Gospels, and you always liken yourself to the sinner's and never to the self-righteous religious elite, what does that say about you? When you you read the parable of the prodigal son, and you love the younger brother, and you hate the older brother, what does that say about you? When you have compassion on the older brother, but you hate the younger, what does that say about you? You read the Bible, and the Bible reads you. You look at the word, and it looks back into you. You receive counsel, and wisdom, and self-awareness as you read this book. So you must pick it up. And if you're a Christian, you must humbly receive and obey it. James goes on. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. When you look into the word, the law of freedom, if you will, and you you persevere in it, it which James calls the law of freedom, in case you think the Bible is restrictive and thus makes life worse. James would actually say that it's in following the law. It's when you're living within God's parameters for life that you actually find freedom. Without it, you are a slave to sin. You are a slave to yourself. But within God's law, you find freedom paradoxically enough. When you do that, what you do will be blessed. But what is it that you will do? What's the thing you will do that will be blessed? It's whatever the law of freedom says. Do you want to do, do you want God to bless what you do? then do the things that God blesses. This isn't some sort of like teaching on prosperity in James that if you do good, God will give you a little treat like a, like a Ferrari or a new house or something like that. As scholar Craig Blomberg puts it, those who display such deeds will be blessed in their doing. Here the blessing actually validates the inherent worth of good works for the reward comes in or by the doing itself. This is not an eschatological blessing, he means one to be received uh, as a later reward for your work on earth, but the promise of personal fulfillment in the very process of doing what believers know to be right. Do you see when you dig into God's law and live it out, what you receive is the blessing that just comes with knowing God and walking in his ways. If you're sitting here this morning and you know God, and you've ever strayed from what God asks of his people, you know how that feels. It's not great. It's never fully enjoyable. Sin is never fully enjoyable if you love Jesus, I feel like. But doing the will of God, even when it's hard, brings about its own inherent joy and blessing. You're doing what your new nature desires. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this— to look after orphans and widows and their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. By the way, I feel like I'm either doing stand-up comedy or I'm doing the speech at a wedding. (laughs) That's what it feels like as I hold this. I can't do stand-up comedy, I wish. So we get to the end of the chapter, and it's almost a new topic, though it is connective in terms of uh, doing what the word says. If If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, This is cause for alarm, isn't it? What could be harder than to control the things you say? And why is that so hard? Well, I think for one, a self-respecting religious person might not physically harm people, thank the Lord, right? To do so would be out of control, but it might be easier. It might be a little less unreasonable to say what they heard about that person to a friend. They might say what they know about them and disguise it as a prayer request. Some of you know what I mean. Some of you might not be beat... Some of you might not beat down your spouse, but you beat down your spouse with words. Some of you might not harm people, but you will insult and slander them. You'll cut people down with your words. James says if you don't have control of your speech, don't bother thinking of yourself as a religious person. If you don't have control of your tongue and you think you're walking so close with God, you have an unrealistic understanding of your own life, your own heart. Do not be deceived. And he ends with a definition of what pure and undefiled religion is, and I find it so compelling. It's this. It's to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Why do I find that so compelling? Because it takes the divide of the focus of liberals and conservatives and says, you're both kind of missing it. Now, I'm going to stereotype and generalize for the sake of this. Uh, liberals and conservatives in a way that both sides might want to raise a hand and say, actually, but please refrain for a moment. I'm I'm an equal opportunity offender today, that's all that matters. Liberals, known for their care and concern for the poor and the marginalized, but in terms of morality they oftentimes have a much more lax understanding than conservatives do. Conservatives tend to have a much more public opinion about morality in our country, however many would characterize them as paying lip service to concern for the poor and marginalized, the more concerned about the lip service than actually taking care of those people. And both, both of those are broad, sweeping generalizations. And you might be here saying, well, I'm a conservative, and I'm not like that, or I'm a liberal, progressive, I'm not like that, and I get it. And realistically, if you're sitting here, perhaps you're a Christian. And so hopefully, whether you identify on the left or the right, you're living into both sides of these things, both caring for the poor and marginalized and keeping yourself unstained from the world. But here's my point. Either side tends to emphasize one or the other and finds themselves superior. They bless the poor and marginalized in real and wonderful ways and yet have morally, perhaps an almost anything-goes view of the world, and they think they're superior. Or they do little for real human suffering but take a moral high ground and they think they're superior but neither of those things are enough neither of those are God's standards for his people we should both care for the poor and marginalized and also keep ourselves unstained from a world that has plenty to stain us with Christians do both are you doing both Michelle you can come up extra thankful to say that this morning Jesus told this parable in Matthew eighteen twenty-one through 35, and it's, it's not really so much about angers, more specifically about forgiveness, but it applies this morning, and man, is Jesus brilliant. And I want to read it as we prepare to close here. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had had to be sold to pay the debt. At this point, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me. I will pay you back everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and started choking him, saying, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, I will pay you back. Sound familiar? But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed so also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. The point here is that you've been forgiven much. How can you not forgive? But a similar question applies to our text this morning. God has absolute reason to be justly angry with you. And instead of anger, he has become your friend. He sent his son to die for you. The only logical question we can ask is, how can you hold on to anger towards other people? You've chased after other gods, and the righteous, just God of the universe has withheld anger and loved you with an everlasting love. But on some days, you can't let go of the guy cutting you off. You can't keep from raging out over your kids missing curfew, or your spouse being messy, or your spouse nagging you all the time. You can't be kind to your political opponents. God was in a position to be justly angry with you and justly pour out his wrath. And yet he didn't. When you look at the things you've done in your life, the ways you've ignored God, the ways you've basically held up a middle finger to heaven, and you realize the love and the grace that he's lavished on you, what does that do for your anger? Does it melt away? Does it make you want to pay God's kind perspective of you forward to the person who angers you? Does it make you want to absorb an offense and let it slide rather than pay it back? And I wonder this morning, if it doesn't have that effect on your heart, do you even realize how you've been loved? Do you realize the magnitude of your debt that has been erased? It would do us well this morning to remember that. To remember that Jesus, the righteous one, the one who never angered but only pleased God, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he broke it, he gave thanks. After he gave thanks, he broke it, rather, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, again giving thanks. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness was costly, church. It cost Jesus his life. How often are you willing to sacrifice like Jesus to forgive others? To absorb an offense rather than to pay back for it, rather than to lash out, to overlook an offense rather than to mete out judgment? Maybe ask God this morning for his perspective on that as you prepare your hearts for communion. We take communion here at the table every single Sunday by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup and remembering Jesus and what he did for us. And we take communion at your own pace here. So uh, after I pray, you're free to take communion whenever you're ready. If you want to take a few moments to just sit in the quiet with the Lord, please do that. Communion is available towards the back on my left, gluten-free communion uh, towards the back on my right, if you need that. And my friends Randy and Rachel are going to be available on either side of the room to to pray for you. just need somebody to to put a hand on your shoulder and come alongside you in prayer this morning they'd be more than happy to do that so i'm going to pray and then you're dismissed to do what you need to do father you are the great example of being righteously angry and yet responding out of love you have every reason to be angry with things that we've done with that anger what you decided to do was send your son as a sacrifice so that we might be forgiven this morning is perhaps we are in this place and we're angry with someone perhaps somebody that did something not like cutting us off on the highway something terrible to us God would you deal with that anger in our hearts forgiveness always costs someone something Somebody has to pay for it, either the person we're angry with, or us by not by not lashing out. As we look to how you you dealt with your wrath, how you sent your son to die for us, might it might it inform and impact the way we deal with anger, the way we, we deal with one another, the way we love those who have hurt us? We're grateful that that you sent your son.
0: so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit a seat for you.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.